Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture today will be coming from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the faces of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. May our great God be praised and may all of his enemies be scattered. Giving honor to the Father and to Jesus Christ, the Son, who is our Savior and Lord. And also to the Spirit of God who fills us with his presence and mysteriously unites us to one another. And also with thanksgiving to Pastor Gerald and all the elders again for their kindness for this opportunity to speak. And to all of you, good morning. It's so good to be here again among you, serving uh, the Lord, thankful for your kindness toward me um, today. Before I forget, uh, let me just say two things, Pastor Gerald. I'm glad you've had time to dry off. 
uh, there, um, better you than me, um, <laughs> there, been there, know how you do that as a pastor. Thank you for serving us in humility in that way. Brother TK, again, let me say thank you and Godspeed. You all know him as Ayanda, uh, but Brother TK, may God's grace be upon you in all your endeavors. Thank you for sharing this time um, with us. So uh, I probably should thank everyone who after the first service brought me towels and paper towels and water with tons of ice in it. Uh, don't be alarmed. I am going to look like uh, I st was standing in the rain by the end of this. It was just, I had no idea. Manfred told me, or he handed me a bottle of water uh, when I was in the back before first service started, and he said, here, you're going to need this. I had no idea what he was talking about. I, <laughs> boy, did I need it. So, Let us um, look to the Lord in prayer, and then let's go into God's word. God, I need you and we need you so that we can hear your voice speak to us and be obedient, fight against all dullness of hearing, all lack of zeal in us. Give us courage to be your instruments in mercy and grace and love with meekness and gentleness of Christ. To those who are outside of Christ, May our love toward one another be great, so much so that people just marvel at the working of the Spirit of God in us, knowing that it means that the Son is real. Thank you for Calvary Memorial Church. Would you speak in a special way to anyone listening now and who might be listening asynchronously later to this message who does not know Christ? Would you please pour out mercy from heaven and reveal the Son? Would you magnify yourself and help that person or those persons to stop searching and to rest everything on Jesus? Now, God, bless our time together. May you give us grace to preach and to hear, and may you make the name of Jesus greater to every one of us. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You have, may have seen in this week's national news outlets that Harvard University's Organization of Chaplains selected as its next president of chaplains, Greg Epstein, an avowed atheist and author of Good Without God. Epstein who was raised in a Jewish home, justifies his own elevation and success on the campus with words like these. There is a group of people who no longer identify with any religious tradition, but still experience a real need for conversation and support around what it means to be a good human and live an ethical life. Of the many abilities for which the students and fellow Harvard chaplains applaud Mr. Epstein in the New York Times article on his appointment, one student said the following, quote, he showed me that it's possible to find community outside a traditional religious context, that you can have the value add religion has provided for centuries, 
which is that it's there when things seem chaotic, unquote. Epstein is tapped into the religion of the nuns, the 40% of millennials who check none when polled about their religious identity. Such people have checked out a traditional organized religion, maybe due to its rigidity or its inability to answer questions millennials are asking about life. The nuns have found their own inner personal spirituality, whether they recognize it or not. This spirituality allows them to be open to concepts about communities and belief systems with the hope provided by religion, but without any religious trappings one would identify with the world's great religions. It's great that the nuns have someone like Epstein to point them to non-religious spirituality with the benefits and practices of a religion. And I am sympathetic to their yuck factor toward legalistic religious practices that many of them have experienced. But I wonder if they have anyone to show them how to get right with God. See, if religious or spiritual activity could get you right with God and not simply make you feel good about being semi-moral according to your standards within your inner circles, you could bomb the World Trade Center and be right with God. You could serve cyanide-laced grape juice and be right with God. You could follow horoscopes or tarot cards, down a full bottle of Jack every night, get up and go to church on Sunday morning, sing with all the saints of God, and still be right with God. You could show up to the church-based funeral and pay your respects to the dead, and you would be right with God. Several well-known modern entertainers have religious lyrics in their, or ideas in their lyrics, so many of their fans assume that the entertainers are prepared to meet God. How do we reason with people who are religious in many forms, but still are not right with God, and yet they see no need to be exclusive in faith in order to be right with God. In our story of the gospel going to all the world in the hopes of the healing of people of all nations, that is, the spiritual healing of all people who are under the judgment of God because of our sins against him, Paul lands in Athens after having been run out of Thessalonica and Berea by ancient Jewish opposition. The rampant idolatry Paul sees in Athens greatly disturbs him as much as modern forms of idolatry should disturb us. True to custom, Paul will serve the covenant people of Israel first, entering the synagogue, bringing the message that is priority for those from whom the Messiah descended. He will have dialogue with them to argue the case for Jesus being their Messiah. 
He will reason also with those who, like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, are Gentiles who enjoy Jewish morality and monotheism, but without the circumcision. He takes part of each one of his days to give time to reasoning with whoever in the marketplace, whoever in the Greek agora, will listen to him proclaim Jesus. In Paul's encounters, Luke will show us three ideas surrounding Paul's reasoning with religious people that will help us have nation-healing dialogues about the good news. It also is my hope in today's sermon and prayer that these three ideas will allow me to reason with you who are listening today who identify as atheistic or as one of the nuns or as a devout follower of a non-Christian religion because I want you to leave being religious and become right with God. Here is the first of the three things that Luke will show us. Everyone claims to know God, but most people do not understand the resurrection of the Son of God. Paul's Athens is much like a contemporary city with a mosque, Hindu temple, Kingdom Hall, Church of Christ scientists, or a church in every neighborhood only blocks from one another. He will go right to the center of a place that is abounding with lines of idols, square pillars, phallic symbols, busts, and statues to honor Themis, Uetria, Hecate, Hermes, Zeus, and Athena. Yet Paul does not reason to himself, they have their gods, so I won't bother them. Or, I cannot judge another person's religion with his God. Instead, he engages them with Jesus and the resurrection. In addition, in addition to the formerly religious people, the philosophers also will dialogue with Paul. All philosophies address matters of worship, ethics, morality, spirituality, and community in their theories and their practices. Philosophies are not necessarily religious only or formally claiming a religious belief. Adherents of any philosophy do in fact have, however, a belief that they practice religiously, even liturgically, if they gather as groups with other adherents regularly. Paul's philosophical inquirers are the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed that matter was eternal, that the gods had immortal bodies dwelling apart from this world in supreme happiness, and that they did not interfere with human affairs. Their goal for people was pleasure, not self-indulgent hedonism as we often depict the Epicureans, but the absence of disturbances and the removal of fears, the fear of death, the fear of the gods, and the fear of divine judgment. There was no place for the resurrection in the body of their philosophy. 
The Stoics stressed the importance of reason and self-sufficiency. They taught that the universe manifested God, and they were tolerant of all the gods. They exalted the unity of all humanity and kinship. Neither the Epicureans or Stoic systems had the full concept of a singular God himself putting on human flesh to resolve the human dilemma of sin by taking the wrath of God upon himself, rising from the dead and offering life freely upon belief. Yet both sets of philosophers want to hear of the foreign deities that simply seems like babbling when Paul preaches. Their love for hearing the next new philosophical idea that flashed across their ancient screens leads them to bring Paul to present his strange resurrection ideas to them. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and yet when Paul preaches the resurrection, they still say, hmm, maybe we would like to hear what he has to say. Number two, everyone hedges their bets with God, but most people do not search out the one true God. But by talking about Jesus in the public square daily, Paul finds himself in the center of opinion makers and worldview shapers. He begins by making connections with both groups by addressing the philosophers with respect and by acknowledging a point of good in their belief systems. I see that you have a statue to the unknown God. That's a good thing. Paul sees that they recognize that they could have missed one God as they created artifacts of worship for all the gods that they have named in their pantheon. Altars to the unknown God were common in the Grecian world. They were the Greeks' way of making sure that they had covered all their bases when it came to pleasing the deities. They might have missed a lesser god or even a greater one. And that lack of an altar of worship to that unknown one could have been viewed as disrespect by the deity. And that would have posed a danger for the Greeks. They could not have had full-blown worship of this deity, however, he or she, for the God was not known personally. And this God, being unknown, had no recognizable, localized assignment over something like war or fire or water or fertility. The altar, therefore, was just a tipping of the hat without any real commitment or reverence. It was like in our society, wearing a cross or a star of David on one's chain or earring. Or it was like the tattooing of a verse of scripture or a verse of the Quran on one's arm. Or it was like the adding of a good Eastern religious quote to one's yearbook picture or retirement party speech. Or it was like attending a place of worship like this one for an annually celebrated religious service, each 
or all of those activities without a daily practice behind those activities. It's like a person feeling this. You know that quote from the Dalai Lama that I have on my face mask over my cursing mouth? That proves that I'm religious. Or showing up to church one day out of 52 so we can take mom to dinner together should keep me good with God, right? Paul would not allow the Greeks to stay in ignorance about God, clearly indicating that a religious system apart from Christ is insufficient for salvation. Excuse me. With an unknown God, one is not okay with God or even fuzzy about God. In Paul's mind, one is without God. To those without God, Paul will proclaim the only message that he has been proclaiming the entire book of Acts, the death of Christ and his resurrection. He will go from their point of having an unknown God in their verse to revealing who that God is in the person of Jesus. He proclaims, four things to make points of contact with what they already believe in order to plunge them into the heart of the empty tomb. So now in Paul's sermon in verses 24 through 27, we're going to see Paul making four points so he can take them from unknown God as their understanding of God to Jesus as the true God. Four things. One, the true God is the creator and Lord of all. There are no localized gods over individual domains in heaven or on the earth. There is one creator who rules over all and therefore is greater than all. Thus, one should not think that any one temple could possibly house this God. Human hands can never build what would be great enough for the creator of all things. Two, the true God is self-sustaining. What kind of God needs the service of people by the fashioning together of idols? The God who made the world is the one who gives every person the breath we breathe and take for granted and the very lives we have since life and being reside in God only. Only God has a being that never gets sick or needs rest or needs recharging. Only God lives without dependency on any other thing. He needs no other power source, no fuel, no chemical joint, no jolt, no thing besides himself. Being and life are inside of him and we wouldn't want it any other way. We would not want a God that we must prop up by our works or sacrifices or worship. The true God is God whether people worship him or not. Anyone breathing is what Paul is trying to say should be pondering the origins of the breathing on which we depend. Three, the true God is sovereign. 
The true God made one man, Adam, and made all people from that one man. He determined where each person should live on the earth. He determined what period of time each person should be born. That is true sovereignty. That is ruling with absolute authority over all things. The true God makes one person, then makes all from one person, then determines whether or not you and I will live in Paris or Peru, Puerto Rico or the Philippines, Afghanistan, Algeria, American Samoa or the Amazon. That's where you and I will live until he reveals we will live someone else, somewhere else, and he picks us up and moves us there. He has done this in all generations, having us live at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, rather than in the 5th century BC or in 1477 AD. Our existence, place of birth, and place of history in the world, therefore, is not haphazard or arbitrary. It is full of meaning and purpose, but only when you posit a creator. He is Lord over time, over life, over gender, over geography, over political boundaries, and over the events we will experience in our lifetime. An inscription on a bracelet like this one cannot possibly make one right in the sight of a God this powerful. Four, the true God is approachable. The very thing the philosophers are doing by making an altar to an unknown God and by having any philosophical system at all is an attempt to find the truth about God. But their attempts are like groping in the dark while trying to avoid Edgar Allan Poe's pit, but without the rats and the French forces to help liberate you. Paul says that the true God is near to where the philosophers are groping in the dark with their explanations of life, suffering, justice, religion, and meaningful lists without God. Because we depend upon God for existence, activity, and sustenance, says Paul. God is actively involved in all human affairs. Even the literature of the Greeks reveals this belief. The first quote Paul has in there is long thought to belong to ep epinemies, probably though is a general quote in society. But the second quote is from Aratus' poem, Phinomia. The Greeks already believe in this poetry that all beings come from God. We are his offspring. Therefore, the philosophers should stop hedging their bets with this unknown God, says Paul, and they should try to approach the one true God. In the formal study of systematic theology, when one is studying the doctrine of God, one is studying what theologians call theology proper. 
It is the course of study in which one learns about the existence of God, the attributes that God commutes to us as humans, and the attributes of God that he does not commute to us. He can commute to us things like holiness, love, and righteousness so that we bear his image in the world. But he cannot commute to us things like omniscience, omnipresence, or immutability. None of us is immutable. Theology proper, therefore, is a course that should spawn worshipers like no other as one studies the unfathomable greatness of this completely good and beautiful entity that we know as God. Paul preaches to the Epicureans and Stoics a mini-lesson in theology proper that displays the overwhelming distance between their philosophical concepts of God and the true God who exists as a transcendent maker of groups of black hole clusters that we are just seeing, clusters that are sucking the life from stars in galaxies near to them. Yet, he also says that that black hole cluster creating God, the ruler, the self-sustaining and sovereign one, condescends to us to make himself approachable so that we can find him and enjoy the massive greatness, majesty, righteousness, and joy of one who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his wisdom, power, love, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He does it so that no one need to hedge their bets against God, but that everyone should grope and find him. For you who are searching, but say you want none of religion and none of God, you need to know that God is not shrouding himself away from you so that you can't find him. And he's not pushing you away with rigidity and rules. Instead, God has placed himself within proximity of humans so that he is just one growth length away from you if you can be guided in the right spiritual direction. So I say... Luke's third point to you and to us all. Everyone may want to keep their own ideas about God, but the only way to get right with God is to trust the Son of God. As Paul indicates, forming God as an idol that we can sit on our shelves should not be an option in our minds since we ourselves are not made of gold or silver or stone or other idol materials since we are his offspring. Those ideas and all ideas made up about God in people's imagination factories and on their digitized art easels must be jettisoned. You might feel good about your semi-religious beliefs or practice. But that is not sufficient 
for the day God comes to judge this present world. Philosophizing about God is only good if the answer lands you on a place in which you are prepared to meet with God. To Paul, lands on a two-step plan to move from religious ignorance about an unknown God or no God at all to the truth about God. Here are Paul's two steps. Number one, repent. Turn away from your way of living without knowledge of God to living with knowledge of God as the only creator, sustainer, and sovereign life giver. Stop living the way that you have been living. To repent, you don't have to do religious activity. You need to cry out to God and say, God, please give me the mercy to turn away from my self-made ideas about what is right before you and to turn to your son, Jesus. That's step one. Step two, believe on the one whom God raised from the dead. These are the two steps that we would tell you and anyone who claims that they are a nun or atheist or have another religious practice, just like Paul told the Epicureans and the Stoics. Believe on the one raised from the dead. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach comments on verse 32 and says this, the resurrection is God's attestation about Jesus to all people. It is his attestation to, about Jesus to all people. Do you want to know if Jesus really is the one true God? God says, let me raise him from the dead, and that should settle it for everyone. So that's it. That's all we can say. Repent and believe. That's how you go from being religious and thinking religious is sufficient to being right with God. Now, once we preach this message to 2021 20, atheists, agnostics, and churchgoers, and the nuns, modern sensibilities will lead to the same three responses Paul received for which we should be repaired. Prepared, excuse me, not repaired, prepared. If Paul got these responses, we should expect these same responses. Some of the onlookers scoff at what Paul is preaching. They hear about the resurrection. They say, resurrection from the dead? Oh, come on. Who believes that kind of stuff? Anyway, whatever he's talking about. Okay, we should expect that. We know people have scoffed all throughout history. We expect people to scoff at our message. That should not deter us from telling the message. Second, some ask for more information to consider further what has been said. I applaud this response. And if that's where you are today, if you're one of the nuns, or you're skeptical, or you say, I'm atheistic, don't just dismiss. Say, can I learn more about that? There are people wearing badges around here who would love to talk to you. They might come here and be by the stage after service. I will be right here, or right there, or somewhere in this vicinity. I would love to talk to you also. Ask so you can consider further what we're saying about Jesus and him being raised from the dead. Third response. Some trust in the only one 
who has ever fought death and walked away victoriously. That is someone to whom you, I, and all people should run to no matter what we have thought about God before hearing the message about Christ. Death is stronger than any other opponent. It is the strongest opponent out there, the strongest opponent any one of us can ever face. And death has trillions of defeat on his record with no losses. That is, until he stepped into the ring with Jesus. You can have whatever religious idea you want, even if it claims there is no religion or there is no God. But history records that there is a person named Jesus who people in the first century worshipped as Christ, whom they claimed had risen from the dead. That was enough for some of them to leave their Judaism and their Roman gods, two of the most powerful religious systems in the history of the world. They left because this person had the power to change water into wine and the compassion to touch lepers with his hand, the grace to restore Peter publicly after Peter had denied him at his hour of greatest need, and the authority to command the winds and the waves so that they could only rage at the movement of his conductor's wand. That is why believers sing the ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrection king has rendered you defeated. The only way for your religion to make you right with God is for your religion to acknowledge that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God and whom God finds all the pleasures of righteousness that will come to us. Please, sir or madam, who is a nun or an atheist or follows another religion, please drop your religion for being right with God through Christ today. Let us pray. Father, would you be kind and merciful? To someone today listening, wrestling, struggling, dismissing, rejecting, would you bring about a great change of disposition and affections through the gospel? Would you rescue a person from perishing and show them what a truly happy life can be? They stop making up their own inner religion and simply yield to the one who has been raised from the dead. Then, with all boldness, God, give us grace like Paul to speak to those looking religiously and philosophically for answers about the meaning of life, but yet they never consider Christ. 
May you use us in greater ways this day. Magnify now the name of the one we love because he first loved us. It's in his name we pray.